Get in the car. And we got in the car. It's a big, giant limo. And who else got in the car was a medium-sized cow. And we had the cow and the limo and us, and we drove to the Safeway to protest the high price of vegetables. And then we were driving back, and we got uh, pulled over. <laughs> I think the house cow's head was sticking out the window, and it was a funny cop stop. I said, you know, there's 30 more cows coming by. They've just taken this dairy in Beverly Hills, and they're rustlers. <laughs> but I told him I was only kidding, and they relaxed, because they really believed me. Welcome to American Prankster, the historically fascinating, rivetingly incredible life story of Wavy Gravy, original beatnik, hippie icon, comedy pioneer, and pioneering activist who uses humor as a weapon. P.S. You'll find out who the cow and limo belong to later in the episode. We went to Japan with 150 rock and rollers to save the whales and dolphins. And then also Odetta was part of that adventure. Odetta was a musician, actress, and activist known as the voice of the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr. called her the queen of American folk music. With the, her, her boyfriend at the time was called Louisiana Red, and he was quite nice. Odetta took over uh, Tom and John Law's house. Tom and John Law are Wavy's forever friends from university to Woodstock and beyond. I had that place at, at one particular point when I was playing at the Ashgrove and later at the Renaissance, where I could actually, from a ladder in my yard, I could see my name in lights on Sunset Boulevard, which was a mind blow, absolute mind blow. I can't spend hours up on that ladder admiring myself. I mean, it was awesome. Right there on Sunset Boulevard, Hugh Romney. I did not wavy gravy, not for a long time, but there it was. I'm producer Rainbow Valentine, and in this episode, psychedelic history and Hollywood collide when Hugh Romney moves to L.A. to pursue his career as a stand-up comedian. Was this the electric toothpick show you did? No, this was before the electric toothpick. Ooh, but maybe not. Yeah, yeah, it was toothpicking. But this was a big extravaganza of all the toothpicks. That was the, the biggest deal. Then I would, you know, be on the road and I would go to Arizona and what are other places like that? <laughs> we'll hear about Wavy's best friends of the mid-1960s who influenced and inspired him. Del Close, oh God, he was so, he was my roommate for a while also. The movers and shakers of the era in comedy, music, TV and film. Were you working as an actor at this time in order to uh, pay your bills? I would get stand-up gigs, never an act. It was me, Hugh Romney, and I would do stand-up and make money. And trailblazers in the world-famous acid tests with Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, who converged in Wavy's one-bedroom apartment, reveling in absurdist shenanigans. This was the first painted bus. There was never a painted bus before further. That was the beginning of it all. You know the meaning of obscenity, don't you? Perhaps you know. See, if I do a disgusting show, or use any disgusting words, I'm just going to be talking about pork. That's my right, you see, as an American citizen, to discuss pork on stage. Although disgust all of you vegetarians and Jews and Muslims, that is my right. 
That's comedian Lenny Bruce. I do remember uh, moving to Southern California. Uh, Lenny had become my manager. Now, before Hugh Romney's name was in lights on Sunset Boulevard, he was a moderately famous beatnik poet improviser with an infamous manager. Lenny, 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 Lenny. Who was Lenny Bruce and why is he important? Well, here to tell us is counterculture author, historian, former publicist for The Grateful Dead, Dennis McNally. Lenny Bruce, he started as a stand-up comedian, heavily influenced by drugs and in particular by jazz, uh, improvisationally. He became something more. What he wanted to do was to cut through the lies and the fraud of society and the hypocrisy uh, and tell the truth. This involved occasionally, quote, bad language, but more importantly, it involved blasphemy, which is to say he made fun of the Roman Catholic Church, for instance. But in the early 60s, the Irish people ran the district attorney's office of most big American cities. And they uh, were mightily offended by him and they uh, prosecuted him, not for blasphemy, because that's not illegal. They prosecuted him for obscenity. The obscenity, of course, is what they did to him, not so much what he did, because he was simply the job of, of the jester of all time, which is to make fun of the lies. It's 1965. Martin Luther King Jr. leads civil rights marches in Alabama. The Watts race riots in South L.A. ensue. U.S. troops in Vietnam increase. Medicare launches. And Hugh Romney leaves the committee in San Francisco and moves to L.A., where Lenny Bruce is his comedy manager. He uh, wanted to be my manager, my stand-up career, and I was thrilled and delighted. And I was to uh, go to his place in the Hollywood Hills and work out details. So drove out there to Lenny's and then he was uh, plotting my career and I was going to go to London and play uh, that place with the Monty Python guys. And then Lenny got busted with a matchbox full of smack in a hobby store for some reason. I don't know why he was in a hobby store. but So my uh, life changed to doing nothing except finding people and say, excuse me, can you type? And if they said yes, I'd say, you want to meet Lenny Bruce? Get in the car. <laughs> and I would take him up to 8825 Hollywood Boulevard, which was this lovely place on the crest of Hollywood Boulevard, high in the Hollywood Hills, this uh, wonderful complex, totally surrounded by barbed wire, except the garage giant door was always open. You could just walk in. And all these typist people, until their fingers wore out, would be typing up briefs for Lenny's court difficulties. Turns out my mom was one of those typists. Here's my mom's memory of working for Lenny. I was a whiz typist, really, because my dad made me take typing in high school so I could have a job, so I could type like crazy. And so Lenny was looking for somebody to transcribe his notes, and so I I was the secretary. So I transcribed his notes, which were mostly on toilet paper. Why? Why? He he spent a lot of time in the toilet because he was a junkie, and I don't think they functioned too well. So what would he do? He would slide new toilet paper under the door? No, no, he'd leave it for me on the desk and be sleeping during the day, and I would transcribe it. It was, I couldn't figure out what he was, why they were busting him. And it just went on and on and on, and the, the law was out to kill Lenny, and it took them quite a while, but they were persistent. 
back to Dennis McNally. And they martyred him. And they eventually turned, I mean, he was always, he always dabbled in drugs, but by the end, he was completely crazy. What would happen is that they would go into court and uh, uh, some cop would read very badly what the notes of what they said he said. Lenny would say, but that's not what I said, or that's not the way I said it. And eventually he was convinced that the only way that truth could be served would be for him to do his act in front of the Supreme Court. And they'd get it and all would be well, which does not recognize the realities of the American legal system. And he basically was murdered. He was crucified by the, the legal system. And it was pretty horrible to watch. In the beginning, it was fun because, I, you know, Lenny and I would go out and do things at night and like steal shrubbery and bring it back and plant it in toilet bowls. And he had roses growing out of toilets all over the yard. He had this great scene when he got back from the hospital. Wavy means the hospital of Lenny's broken leg from the DMT-fueled window jump in the last episode. The bed was way up in the air. He had taken the couch, this velvet couch, apart. So the bottom of the couch was gone. It was just the, the back frame was the side of his bed. And he was ensconced there. Just wonderful. Then somehow or other, I ended up with it. Many after Lenny had died and, and uh, John Judnick, that was his uh, man Friday, was giving Lenny stuff away. And I ended up getting the, the top of the couch back which was great. <laughs> Full circle. Yeah, it was uh, deep velvet, and it was very romantic. I remember when I first went up there, Lenny took me out in the backyard by the pool and screamed to the dogs, bark for the rich man on the hill, and the dogs and all, all over Beverly Hills. And go, oh, oh. <laughs> it was very impressive. He was... Uh, Oh, God, what a great genius. Relentlessly harassed by the U.S. government for speaking the fucking truth, comedian Lenny Bruce died on the toilet at age 40 of a drug overdose, August 3, 1966. However, Lenny Bruce's tragic death didn't stop Hugh Romney's rising comedy career. I worked a club in Hollywood called the Renaissance on Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard is on the side of a big hill and it's cut into the hill. So the Renaissance was on the downhill side of Sunset Boulevard, and you'd have to go down a bunch of steps to get to the entrance. And then there was a whole lot of steps to get to backstage. So I went early with chalk, and I wrote stuff like, go back three spaces, twirl around three times, and holler at the stars. And I created this whole endeavor. And I remember Monk showed up. Monk especially, I was close to. His middle name was Sphere. Thelonious Sphere Monk. Just a reminder, Thelonious Monk was a renowned jazz pianist and composer known for his snazzy outfits and for leaving his piano to dance while fellow jazz musicians played on. And he looked at it and he proceeded to do the whole thing. He'd spin around three times and then he'd go forward and hop to the left and this and that. It must have taken him 20 minutes to get down the stairs and I was hiding in the closet. And I pulled him in and we smoked a big fat joint, which he consumed greedily in 
one puff, it proceeded to light up the closets for a few seconds. I've never seen any inhalation of that level in my entire life before or since or now. He went down to the gig at the Renaissance, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh. And he sits down at the piano, and he proceeds to throw up his arms and bring him down. And he hit the wood on both sides. And then he readjusted, and then he played flawlessly all night long. It was amazing. And what a perfect middle name that his mama must have gave him when she rocked him in the cradle in his old cotton fields back home. When he was a little bitty baby, his mommy would rock him in the cradle. Sphere. <laughs> he was great fun. Monk died in 1982 of a stroke. I would walk across Hollywood in the night with Tim Harden, and we would walk to the Troubadour and come on at midnight where uh, I would uh, improvise into a microphone and Timmy would croon tunes. You know, he's the guy who wrote, If you were a carpenter and I were a lady. That one. If I were a carpenter... He would ride a surfboard back then, which was, you know, kind of cool to go across Hollywood on a surfboard. No, it was uh, not a surfboard. What are those things? It's like a surfboard, but it has wheels. Skateboard. Yeah, that's what he had. And uh, he also performed at Woodstock, believe it or not. Wavy's friend Tim Harden was a successful musician until he died of a heroin overdose in 1980. His top 40 hit, If I Were a Carpenter, was covered by countless musicians, including Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Willie Nelson, and Dolly Parton. There's some people I miss a lot. Severnick Xavier Tickle Darden III, one of the masters of improvisation coming out of Second City in Chicago. Okay, we've talked about Severin Darden, the comedian who played Culp in the Planet of the Apes movies, in all the other episodes, because Wavy talks about Severin Darden all the time. Finally, Wavy now has moved to L.A. where his friendship with Severin began. And had this most beautiful house on Topanga, and it was just the best. Because he was, he was as funny as it comes. And there's nothing I could throw at him that he could not, you know, throw back, but doubled. The anatomy is, a, is merely the study of what uh, the, the meat is. <laughs> The meat, that's what we, we call it, we doctors. Surely you mean metaphorically. The, the meat. <laughs> that's what meat. Your meat, I meat, everybody is meat. You mean a raw meat piece is, of meat? Uh, we are all meat, let's face well, it. Surely. That's Severin Darden improvising about meat, just like his pal Wavy. In winter, I'm a couch meat. That means I'm meat on the couch. That's me. Apparently all us improvisers who hang with Wavy are into meat satire. Severin Xavier Tickle Darden III. It said so on his luggage. That's a lot of letters. <laughs> and he had the most wonderful house where uh, we would nest. And God, I think back in the day he had a Porsche. And uh, he would have riding chaps and big boots. 
<laughs> and we would get in the Porsche and go over Hollywood Boulevard at frightening uh, speed. And it was it was just great fun. And there were always great people coming by, like Barbara Harris and Nat King Cole's daughter and all these cool people were always uh, coming by to get Jiggy with Sevy. And he was worth it. And at this particular juncture, Severin became a bit of a movie star. <laughs> and he was always in the Doctor Doom and the Revenge of the Rice Krispies or something. And Severin would be doing that stuff and he was a movie star and all the other movie stars loved him because he was hilarious he had an enormous house and then he had an outhouse and a puel and a huge yard where we would cavort and uh, enjoy ourselves immensely at Severin's expense it was nowhere be better until Severin passed away. And then I uh, segued to uh, Bert Schneider, who was the producer of the uh, Easy Rider. Perhaps you recall that. Easy Rider was a 1969 road trip film written and starring Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper. They also produced it with Wavy's friend Bert Schneider. Severin Xavier Tickle Darden III. Sevy was always great fun. He was so funny. Oh my God. Probably one of the funniest men alive, yes. Severin Darden died at 65 of congestive heart failure in 1995. But 30 years before, Severin was part of the L.A. run of the Phantom Cabaret, as heard about in episode three. We had, uh, as part of the Phantom Cabaret, it was not only Sevy, we had Del Close, the Mad Doctor, me, and Tiny Tim. So my friend Laura Foster Corbin, an original hog farmer and Mary prankster, saw the Phantom Cabaret in L.A. Here's Laura Foster Corbin. I went one time. I was still in high school because I'd saved my babysitting money and told my family that I was going to go see my friend in Marin, and I'm on the peninsula south of San Francisco. I get on the Greyhound bus, but I get off at San Francisco airport and purchase a round-trip ticket to Los Angeles for the weekend for like $12.50 and, you know, no masks and no ID and nothing. I'm 16 years old, and I go off to find out what's going there. And I come back on Sunday night, and they said, we called your girlfriend. You weren't there. And I said, no, I guess I wasn't. Where were you? Well, I don't know. I'm back. <laughs> it was quite a, an amazing weekend for a teenager who was supposed to be somewhere else and had gone for another weekend adventure. Onward with more tales of Tiny Tim. He was on Merv Griffith's show, Tiny was, and then he got a permission to come out and be with us. And he stayed in the back room. It was great to have his uh, a roommate. And he would, he would wander through the house with a about half inch of cold cream all over his face. You couldn't even see he was in there. It was just a, a glob in a bathrobe. <laughs> he waiting for Miss Jill to come with her truck. And then they would go for an adventure and we would let him leave. Anyhow, he did stay in the back room where he consumed the Popeye spinach after the gig. Everyone loved Tiny Tim. Here's original Mary prankster Denise Kaufman of the band Ace of Cups on Tiny Tim. 
I never got to see the Phantom Cabaret. I had heard about Tiny Tim from Wavy, from their experiences in New York, and Wavy was trying to bring Tiny Tim out, and Tiny would say he would come, and then he wouldn't get on the plane, or he wouldn't come, you know, and I think his parents didn't want him to come, and he lived with his parents, and he just was, you know, wasn't ready to do it. But finally, he did, and we all went to the airport and met him. It was amazing, and he was fantastic. You know, nobody ever saw him eat, but he and he only ate a couple of things. And he, he liked these a little mandarin. They were like tangerines, little mandarin in a can. And so they'd bring like a case of them and then he would eat them. And then he would put the empty cans outside of his door. A prolific musician and born showman, Tiny Tim had a heart attack while singing Tiptoe Through the Tulips on stage in 1996. He finished the song and collapsed off stage, never regaining consciousness. Tiptoe through the tulips. Oh, God, Tiny Tim. Tiny Tim, I miss him so. And I began to discover that the hardest laughs come from my deepest pains. In improvisation, that's particularly true. Like I was saying before, laughter is a significator of understanding. You can't really laugh without understanding. You can't understand without sharing. And so when someone laughs at a pain of yours, it is not necessarily... It's, I mean, if you take that slight mental adjustment, it's not that you're... Uh, holding yourself up for ridicule anymore. You're, the audience is saying, yes, me too. I feel that too. That's Wavy's friend, improv pioneer Del Close. Del invented the most famous long-form improv game, The Herald, and influenced countless comedians like Gilda Radner, Bill Murray, Amy Sedaris, Amy Poehler, and many more. Del Close and Hugh Romney became roommates in L.A. I was living on Lemon Grove with the great Del Close of uh, Second City and the committee, and also known as the Mad Doctor. Dell was into interferometry, which was uh, doing things with light, and he would bend plastic to project, and it would turn into rainbows on the wall, <laughs> which, you know, is the, today's uh, light show, but nobody ever saw that then, and he kind of pioneered a lot of that stuff, Dell did. We did some amazing shows at the Institute of Flying in Beverly Hills. See giant spots moving slow. Del and I used to do concerts together when I would speak on low-flying meat cream and the summer diet. And Del would be a General D.B. Clevis, and he would project this liquid goop onto the wall. <laughs> and nobody ever saw anything like that. And he also had all kinds of electronic stuff laying around. He would shoot electricity through his body and hold a neon tube and it would light up. The electricity was going into his left hand. The neon tube was in his right hand and it would pass through his body and light up the neon tube. And uh, I thought that was amazing and so did everybody else. I wasn't really into doing it myself. Got a gunpoint. God, I miss him. He was wonderful. Del Close died of emphysema in 1999, five days before his 65th birthday. But before he died, Del and Wavy had some good times. What's your favorite Del Close story? Oh, <laughs> he was uh, in the phone book as 
<laughs> General D.B. Clevis retired. <laughs> he gets calls. I say the general is on the missile range. <laughs> Can I take a message? Oh, mercy. The general is on the missile range. And they, they say, okay, we understand. And I'd take a message. And uh, Del would come in and I'd give him the messages. Describe a typical weekend for you and Del at your apartment on Lemon Grove. Oh, my God. <laughs> he had this little crawl space up in the ceiling. And he would be wearing these black bikini pants, black socks, and goggles. Giant goggles, which made everything look like Mars on snow. <laughs> And I was just a, a regular guy. You were the normal one? The yeah, and Del was in the ceiling. <laughs> just, it was just a, a wonderful time. And we would do shows and make stuff up. And oh my God. Were you guys taking psychedelics? You think? <laughs> this is the time when psychedelic history collides with Hollywood. But before we get to the world-famous Watts acid test, Hugh Romney met Bonnie Jean Beecher. Well, of course, I can remember nothing at all and have no interesting stories to tell. And I'll, I'll answer anything you ask me, almost. <laughs> That's Wavy's wife of over 50 years, Jahanara, also known as Ja, who used to be known as Bonnie Jean Beecher. Somebody called me from California and said, come on out here. It's happening in California. I hitchhiked out. I was irritated as hell that there were things that uh, males could do that I couldn't do. And so I hitchhiked to California and I arrived safely. Jahanara had opened this amazing restaurant on Sunset Boulevard called the Fred C. Dobbs. What's good for you, you won't monkey around with Fred C. Dobbs. The name Fred C. Dobbs is from the treasure of the Sierra Madre. It was played by Humphrey Bogart. Nobody ever put anything over on Fred C. Dobbs. Fred C. Dobbs don't say nothing he don't mean. That's what they called the darn place. And she had a jukebox with the, the great Furry Lewis on it. She gleamed like a goddess on the grill and she put peanuts in my hamburger and I fell in love. So that's Wavy's version, and here's a deeper dive from the woman behind the man, Mrs. Gravy, a.k.a. Jahanara, a.k.a. Ja, or Bonnie Jean. I knew who he was because of my high school study of the beatnik, and I knew of Hugh Romney as a poet. And when I was still in Minnesota, he came to uh, perform at a club. I never got into it. I figured out how to get a fake ID so I could get in. And I took my fake ID and went into the little restaurant attached to the club. And I didn't have the nerve at all to try to use the fake ID. So I sat in the cafe during his performance hoping that he would walk out and walk past me in the booth. But I never got to see him. But I knew who he was. He was Hugh Romney, the beatnik poet. Flash forward a few years, Bonnie Jean hitchhikes to California. My boyfriend, who I'm now living with in, in Berkeley, and he said that he had been at a coffee house and he had met Hugh Romney. And because he knew that I was a fan, could he bring him home and would I cook dinner for him and his girlfriend, Hugh and his girlfriend? So I did. And that's how I met him. Then Bonnie Jean moves to L.A. with her boyfriend. And, oh God, from there it's a sad story. My boyfriend put together with a friend of his a coffee house on Sunset Strip, way 
way up, a little tiny coffee house, and they were naming it who, uh, the Fred C. Dog. I was there with my boyfriend helping him. He went out to get tile. He went to Mexico in my truck. Um, he was going with me to get tile to cover the bar in this coffee house. And I got a phone call as the truck was pulling away. A roommate of ours, a female roommate, hopped in the truck and I got out because it was a call for me to go try out for a film. Uh, so I jumped out, she jumped in, the tires came off the, the truck while they were on a bridge on their way to Mexico and everybody died. So there I am, my, you know, roommate and boyfriend are gone and it was a nightmare. So I went with my husband, with my boyfriend's partner to help open up the coffee house. Musicians and film type people, they came to this coffee house, the Fred C. Dub, and one of them turned out to be Peter Romney. So I got to know him and I was making inventions for people who would want it. I want an ice cream invention. I want a hamburger invention. And I want to, you know, they'd pay a dollar fifty and I'd make them something that had never been made before. I made him a hamburger with peanuts in it. And something about my nature is that I deal with tragedy really well. And then I freak out about three weeks later. And so about three weeks later, I'm standing at the counter and I lost it. And I just, like, I just couldn't function. I couldn't serve people. He saw it happen, picked me up off the floor and took me home and took care of me. And that's how waiting I became close. Her boyfriend at the time was killed in a vehicular accident. And on the energy of that sorrow, she opened the restaurant. And I saw that, you know, she put peanuts in my hamburger and everything, but she was really kind of suffering, like uh, suffering succotash. This is, uh, let's go someplace. I would scoop her up when she finished work and we'd go down Sunset Boulevard to Ciro's. Ciro's was a nightclub on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood, which opened in 1940, closed in 1957, and reopened as a rock club in 1965. Today, Ciro's is the location of the world-famous Comedy Store. And who was at Zero's but the birds? Turns out Wavy's friendship with David Crosby was connected to his courtship of Bonnie Jean. Tell me about your friendship with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. It started with the Cross, which went all the way back to the ancient days of the birds. That's the birds. The Cross was playing with the birds. And they were playing at Ciro's nightly. So we would go there after work and dance the night away. It was magnificent. And then I would lure her to my lair. <laughs> and that's where she became friends with Dell, who thought that she was very nice hooking up with me and not being, you know, jive or anything. She was really nice. So he was bringing Bonnie Jean to his apartment with Del Close, and this is when he's obsessed with tree flesh, Wavy's term for paper, covered in fun, weird things, as discussed in episode four. The best paper we would stick up on the wall, and the temperature of the time with either hot or cold, which would cause assorted uh, thumbtacks to uh, 
pop out of the wall and land on the floor. And you'd be going to the bathroom in the dark and you would, ow, hit one. And in the other side of the room, you would hear, So, to avoid that, you learn to walk in a special way, with barely touching your heel and big toe. And you would walk across the room like that, and therefore avoid the, the pain of the punishment of the tack. <laughs> this uh, did not suit Jahanara when she <laughs> entered my orbit. <laughs> Got one or two tacks, and that was it. I had to deny her the privilege of the pain of the errant tackage when she would go to the laboratory in the dark. She did not care for that and actually uh, put her foot down, but not on a tack. You are looking at a traveler who just bought a ticket for a very special kind of a trip. Transportation to the fantastic and frightening territory of inner space. Courtesy of the most powerful mind-altering drug ever discovered. Courtesy of LSD-25. My full chemical name is dextrolysergic acid diethylamide tartrate 25. But as everyone knows, I'm called LSD for short, though I'm also called acid. And by some highly unflattering names by those who wish I had never been discovered. So around this time, Ken Kesey and his friends, the Merry Pranksters, are embarking on their psychedelic adventures. Let's backtrack. Here's counterculture historian author Dennis McNally to tell us about Ken Kesey. Now, Dennis has just finished telling me about LSD enthusiast Tim Leary. The other most famous person who advocated for LSD was a man named Ken Kesey. Uh, He was a a writer who had gone to Stanford uh, on a writing fellowship and wrote a very good book called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He gathered a group of friends around him who became known as the Merry Pranksters. Writing was, is, slow and difficult, and he decided that LSD was important and that he would share it with people by making a movie. And they went across the country in a school bus and shot a movie. Unfortunately, what they discovered after they came back is that the physical effects of LSD, which is to say, there's a very famous line in in William Blake about seeing infinity in a grain of sand, that, you know, or to look at a flower and you could see all of humanity. That kind of vision is wonderful, that is not necessarily the kind of vision you want when you're trying to run a motion picture camera. So Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and his number one assistant in that was a guy named Ken Babs. And when they took this bus trip, which is now is legendary for any number of reasons, especially because a man named Tom Wolf uh, wrote a really fine book called The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which spread the legend of Kesey and, and the magic bus trip. So you have Kesey the Pranksters and Babs and Neil Cassidy, who was the man who drove the magic bus. They came back, they're trying to make this movie. By now, they, they had done that trip in 64. And by 65, they'd sort of reluctantly admitted that, frankly, they weren't going to make a movie. So they decided to do it live. And what they did was they had a party, a place called La Honda. Specifically, they, the first one was at Babs's house. And everybody did LSD, which was kind of a normal Saturday night at the Keezy's. Now, the point I'm trying, oh, that is important to remember is Keezy was more on the anarchistic side and just said, Let's take LSD, let's be nice to each other, and see what happens. Ah yes, the philosophy of the counterculture. And how did you meet the pranksters in the first place? Oh, Keezy went and found me out. 
I was living with Tim Harden in Hollywood, and he just showed up and grabbed me and took me to uh, Babs's place in Sakel and uh, had me watch 27 hours the footage that they took when they drove the bus from California to New York the first time. It was a big hit. Nobody ever saw anything like that before in their life. And suddenly this bus is driving by. Oh, God, I just had to watch footage for days. I, they, I think they stuck toothpicks into my eyes so I could keep watching. This was somehow a plot to uh, capture me into their mambo. And, of course, I surrendered, whatever that was, and was occasionally on the bus. You're either on the bus or you're off the bus. Sure words were never evoked. <laughs> the historical significance generally was that Timothy Leary gave LSD a very bad name. And Kesey did so in a very different way. Kesey's way largely channeled through the Grateful Dead and through psychedelic culture in San Francisco in which people took LSD without rules, but with, with the notion that if they were in a safe space and with friendly people, things would be fine, which 99.99% of the time was true. And the historical significance of that, unfortunately, got completely obscured by the, the psychological establishment, the political establishment, the legal establishment. I just want to confirm what I, I'm understanding then is you're saying Ken Kesey told people you should take LSD to raise your consciousness and do it with friends in a safe setting? I think you could generally say that, yes. Side note, this is exactly what my psychedelic pioneer parents taught me about LSD. And that's what he did. He set up these friendly groups with a sa- in a safe setting where everybody did LSD. And for the Grateful Dead, it was it was a real epiphany because they, as musicians, discovered that they weren't the show at, at those events, which were called acid tests. They were simply the soundtrack. The show was everybody in the room. Tell me about your friendship with Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead, Bob Weir. Yes, it, it had to do with this traveling road show that we did called Can, Can You Pass the Acid Test? Good question. Used to cost a dollar to get in, and it was very appreciated that for a dollar they could make the floor change color. <laughs> and so everybody lined up to do that. And that, of course, the Grateful Dead were the house band. We just stayed friends forever. So it's 1965. Hugh and Bonnie Jean, aka Wavy and Jaw, are living with Dell in the one bedroom apartment on Lemon Grove in Hollywood. Now, this story gets us to the world famous acid tests. The first thing that John and I did, we wanted to do an event to honor living in Southern California and Lord Richard Buckley, the great entrepreneur who we loved and adored. He was no longer of this orb. So we talked about Lord Richard Buckley in episode three. He was the safari hat-wearing stand-up comedian adored by the beatniks who died in 1960. But we sent out these invitations to everybody we knew in uh, Southern California and beyond. And the invitation had a quote of Lord Buckley, the flowers, yes, the flowers, but the people are the true flowers. And it has been a pleasure to have momentarily strolled in your garden. And we, we had a map taking people to this very unusual mountain off of Hollywood or Sunset winds way up in the hills and there's a mountaintop called Moonfire 
which was owned by Louis Beach Marvin III, the heir to Green Stamps. So Moonfire Ranch is in Topanga Canyon, the hippie neighborhood of L.A., and apparently is now rentable as a movie location. It still seems to be owned by Louis Beach Marvin III and his family, heirs to the SNH Green Stamps, which were literal green stamps manufactured from 1896 to the late 1980s and tradable for prizes. If you wouldn't feel quite right about spending $47.98 for a blender, don't. Get it with SNH Green Stamps. The cow in the limo story Wavy told at the beginning of this episode was Louis's limo and cow. If you see him at Woodstock, he's followed by sheep that were very enamored with him. He let me use his mountain from time to time, and he was very strange. But anyhow, <laughs> Lord Richard Buckley Memorial Sunset. And on the, the day of the sunset, it's raining and raining and raining. And first I went downstairs, and suddenly, who is in my apartment house but 50 uh, pranksters cooking eggs? They had arrived to do this traveling road show called Can You Pass the Acid Test? Weasel analysis, I can't talk now. <laughs> they scooted. So Babs says to me. Very prankster Ken Babs was Keezy's right-hand man, plus a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and a writer. P.S. He just put out his memoirs. Babs says to me, you really want to go up on that mountain? And it's raining and raining and raining. And uh, I, I had all said, call off the sunset. We're going to do this prankster thing at the Unitarian Church uh, in the valley. It's a big geodesic dome. The minister was a guy named Paul Sawyer, who I ended up going to San Quentin every time they were going to fry a guy. Anyhow, Bab says, you really want to go to that mountaintop? And I said, yeah. And he threw me the keys to this valiant. And about five of us got in the car and drove to uh, Moonfire and walked up that muddy road and in the pouring rain and we walked up and up and when we got to the top, suddenly the rain stopped, the clouds parted and the most magnificent sunset that anybody ever saw in their entire lives went down. And I was so ashamed because Lord Buckley did his thing and we didn't even show up. So in the future, whenever our name is appeared on anything, we will be there. And we don't care if it's a fire or a flood or whatever. We're, we're, we show up. Sometimes we're the only one there, but we show up. And it was a great teaching for us. Okay, let's backtrack. Wavy said he came downstairs to find 50 merry pranksters in his apartment cooking eggs. What is going on? I called my old camp counselor, Sunshine Keezy, daughter of Ken Keezy, to find out. You know, 65. Your dad and I guess 30 or... Wavy fluctuates from 30 people to 50 people. (laughs) You know, the merry pranksters and Ken Keezy show up in L.A. because they're on this run of acid tests. And it's getting hot. I mean, they're like one each weekend, right? Or even sooner, you know, like some were even smashed together sooner than that. So, you know, the feds and everybody were very interested in what was going on. And busts were starting to happen. Side note, Sunshine is referring to busts for marijuana because LSD was legal until 1966. Here's a news clip of Sunshine's parents, Ken Kesey and Carolyn Adams, also known as Mountain Girl, upon being arrested for marijuana in 1964-65. It is, it is a perilous society if you don't look a certain way. I feel like you only come to this movie once, and if you don't get something rewarding out of every minute you're sitting there, then you're blowing your ticket. Carolyn, how did this experience affect you? Oh, 
I'm tired of it all. <laughs> Are you glad it happened? I'm not glad it happened, but I'm not sorry about it particularly. I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not weeping with remorse. Mr. Kesey, do you feel that you have the right to do what you want, whatever you want, and still live in this world? I feel that a man has the right to be as big as he feels it in him to be. And so they basically fled to L.A. because they were trying to continue with their acid tests, and, um, but they were too hot up in the Bay Area. You know, they were getting stalked by the, the suits and were worried that they were, you know, putting everybody in danger. And so they're like, yeah, got to keep moving, you know. My dad, um, he pretended to commit suicide and um, fled. So, you know, they made uh, plans to go to L.A. And then, yeah, sure enough, they were told to go to um, this place of Wavy Gravies. And um, everybody had heard about these guys, of course, you know, Tiny Tim. And, and so they were able to, you know, everybody met, you know, and it was like this big meeting of uh, Severn Darden and Bonnie Jean and Del Close and, and uh, Tiny Tim. And um, so it was a great, you know, cultural mishmash there of uh, performers and weirdos and, um, the night and comedians. And they were all, you know, ready to make, make fun. <laughs> and, um, and so they were on, they were ready to make, do their acid test. And I think they had a, a really, um, amazing experience down in LA. Um, I don't think Tiny Tim came though. I'm not sure. My mom said he was not really into that kind of raucous situation. So if you recall in episode one, Wavy told the story of the 1965 Lysergic Agogo, also known as the Watts Acid Test. Here to share another view of the same event is original Mary prankster Denise Kaufman of the band Ace of Cups. Denise, monikered Mary Microgram by Keezy, hopped on the magic bus when she was 18. So that time at Lemon Grove had some particularly memorable journeys. The acid test you're talking about is was at Watts in this old warehouse. And there hadn't been any big gatherings in Watts that we had heard of since the Watts civil unrest, you know, where they were called the Watts Riots in those days. The Watts Riots of August 1965 were sparked by the police beating of an unarmed 21-year-old black man in Watts, a South L.A. neighborhood, then primarily African-American. But we were in this big warehouse, and the dead were there playing, and there were a couple of rooms, and we had, you know, lights and sound and everything going on. And Okay, listeners, this might sound like a normal Burning Man kind of party to you, but in 1965, this was groundbreaking. 1965 was the same year SpaghettiOs, Apple Jacks, and AstroTurf were invented, and it was illegal for a woman to get a credit card without a husband. The acid test parties were revolutionary. There was a big vat of electric Kool-Aid. We had two ash cans full of Kool-Aid. And I said, the Kool-Aid on the right is for the kids. The Kool-Aid on the left is the electric Kool-Aid. And this woman had just, after she ingested it, she was just screaming and kind of moaning. Who cares? Who cares? So Wavy had the mic and he had the mic on her, uh, a mic on her. And it was just echoing through the room and or the rooms. And it was like a plaintive, seminal, deep human cry of every being, you know? But there was something about it that was just so. But then Wavy was just able to kind of talk with her and kind of just do his magic with her. 
and she kind of calmed down and came into a more peaceful place. And I think she was in a more nourishing and supported place, and she felt that. Outside, during that acid test, like the Watts riot squad was outside. They didn't come in, but these full like police force with helmets and billy clubs and leather jackets and the uniforms, they were just all standing there outside. Yeah, I don't know whether the who cares scared them or what, but they did not come in. But at the end, when we were packing, the feeling I had was that they had to grab somebody. It was sort of like if you have like a, a, a whip or a rope and you swing it and then there's that crack at the end. It was like they had to grab the end in some kind of way. And so when we were and we were kind of like that rope winding ourselves back into the bus with all the equipment and everything. And they grabbed Paul Foster. I mean, they had to get somebody at the end of this thing. They just couldn't go away empty-handed. Back to Dennis McNally. To quote Jerry Garcia, The Grateful Dead, where is it written that there's something illegal about changing your consciousness? Back to original Mary Prankster, Denise Kaufman. But then the rest of us got in the bus and went to the Watts Towers. The one-of-a-kind, architecturally stunning Watts Towers, built by an Italian immigrant, Simon Rodia, between 1921 and 1954, are a folk art spectacle of astonishing beauty made of sky-high railroad ties, mosaic with a kaleidoscope of found objects like broken tiles, dishes, bottles, and, according to me, is the number one place a tourist should visit in Los Angeles. All the pranksters climbed around on the Watts Towers for quite a while, and that was a beautiful and amazing. And for me, I was just coming on to LSD, so climbing around the Watts Towers with everybody was. And I think it was that day that we went back to Lemon Grove, and Wavy and I went in the house and to this little kind of back room area and started passing back and forth one breath. And I think we did it for hours. We had like our mouths were right up to each other. We were on the floor and we were just like we were a lung. And we just went back and forth with this one breath for a really, really long. People would walk in the room and look at us and go, ah, <laughs> walk out, you know. Yes, maybe was my psychedelic soulmate. And you know, the, the thing for me on the bus, it's like the soul of being on the bus for me. For a lot of people, it's like, well, what's it like to be around Kesey? But for me, like, the soul on the bus was was wavy. The bus Denise refers to is Ken Kesey's bus, whose name was Further, which was driven by Neil Cassidy, whose name is synonymous with the counterculture. Here's Dennis McNally again. So Cassidy was this young sociopath. He inspired Kerouac in On the Road, and then later Kesey himself, as being a man who lived life, whose, whose consciousness lived life more fully than anyone. Other people just thought he was crazy. And among other things, he could see around corners. Now that sounds insane. All I know is that he didn't die driving a car and from all accounts he should have a thousand times over. But Neil was magical in some fashion and inspired people and inspires people to this day. Tell me about your friendship with Neil Cassidy. Oh, the fastest man alive. Ten things at once and nothing twice. I used to shotgun for Neil 
when he was driving the bus, which is a loose rendition of what he was doing, because not only was he stepping on the gas and steering right and left, he was rolling a joint and having several conversations and peeling an egg and uh, also a banana and <laughs> frying them up together on a small uh, burner that he'd have next to I was the shotgun. My God, Neil, watch. Ah! It was, <laughs> I'd have to go into analysis every night after I was done, cooked and, and finished. And it was impossible for me to nap because I was so uh, incredibly on edge. Although it was uh, also a hoot and a holler. In retrospect, very enjoyable. But in the moment, it was nerve-wracking. My nerves were were racked. By the way, Kesey's bus further was the very first multicolored painted bus in America. All the van life art car and Burning Man peeps can thank Kesey. Here's Denise Kaufman on her very first encounter with further the bus. First of all, I didn't know the pranksters yet. When I drove, we drove onto the conference ground and saw this bus that was unlike anything that was on earth. You know, it's like you can't imagine what it was like never to have seen anything like that and then to see it, you know, at, at that point in time. And then all the pranksters were there. And this was early, you know, people didn't know who, who they were. Of course, they knew who Kesey was because he was an acclaimed novelist, you know, already. And of course, Cuckoo's Nest was, you know, well, so he was, you know, considered like the next Hemingway. So there was this unprecedented psychedelic creative alliance between stand-up comedian poet Hugh Romney and acclaimed novelist Ken Kesey. In an era of tremendous transformation in America, the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, the invention of the birth control pill, so much was going on. This is one party that just has to turn out right. Well, the purpose of a party is to have fun together. And a successful party needs planning and skill. Whether it's a special carnival designed for gay entertainment, or a game party in a home, a birthday party, a holiday party, they all take planning, and they should all and be they fun. Should, and they should all be fun. I still have deep dreams about prankster business in the cement apple and beyond. It was kind of gracious and amazing and certainly is grounded in my cerebral cortex where it will live forever. And if I'm reincarnated, it'll be part of my reincarnation because it's so ground in. I wouldn't trade it for anything. So, you know, there was some real old-fashioned competitiveness, I think, on my dad's side. Probably not on Wavy's side. I don't know. I asked Sunshine how she thought Wavy impacted her dad, Ken Kesey. They had parallel trajectories of life. You know, my dad being a writer, kind of different level of storytelling and act, you know, whereas Wavy um, being a comedian and morphing into something new too himself. I, I mean, I think that's the time actually he went and bought himself a bus too. And I think that even rankled my dad a little bit. He was just like, wait a minute, you know, like, uh, hey, that's my gig, you know, but, you know, everybody gets their own bus. You know, my dad studied theater in, in college and he was a magician in high school too. So he really wanted to blow people's minds basically long before he got into acid or anything. Like he enjoyed that relationship with an audience where you just take, you know, suspend their disbelief and blow their minds. 
And I'm sure Wavy's the same way, you know, gosh, I'll never forget doing, what is it, the human kazoo? <laughs> you know? Just putting the paper bag on your head and doing the funny mantra and, you know, he did that to whole audiences, you know, everyone put this on your head. You are now a human kazoo. It was a kind of cross-pollination point for a lot of folks. I think he was challenged by Wavy's humanitarianism and was it helped him bring his up more and become a kinder human being to the general public. He could still be a little rough to his crew. Because my dad also got approached by a lot of people who had mental health issues or history because of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And so he was a magnet for people who were really flying up in the Milky Way sometimes. That power that Wavy had to reach in and be kind and heal people like that, I think my dad was definitely impacted by that. And he he uh, softened the way that Wavy's uh, work and presence has um, kind of brought the game up for a lot of people. Instead of just being satiric, snarky, you know, types of people, they actually started to grow a heart and think about others and not just leave, have that kind of scorched earth um, style of partying. <laughs> <laughs> So what happened after the Watts acid test of 1965? It seems like it was almost yesterday. Uh, there we were uh, being invited to join the Merry Pranksters for a shoot at this gas station in Hollywood to pose for uh, Life magazine. The next thing you know, Ken Babs uh, steals the bus. Mrs. Gravy and I are left with maybe 40 house guests. <laughs> And the landlord came by and said, you cannot have 40 people living in a one-bedroom cabin. You are evicted. And at that moment, a friend, Bud Pelsu, came by and said, old Saul up on the mountain uh, had a stroke. They need somebody to slop them hogs. In the next episode, the American hog farm hijinks in L.A. and on the road. And so it came to pass that we were given a mountaintop rent-free if we would tend 40 hogs the size of Davenport's. <laughs> they were quite large. And on Christmas Day, the mechanics in our expanded family gave the family a bus, which we proceeded to start painting immediately. And then we got in it and took off. American Pranksters, executive produced by Rainbow Valentine Studios, Eric Hober, Larry and Gerger, Brilliant God and Company, Thessaly Lerner, Rainbow Valentine, Sunshine Keezy, and Wavy Gravy, and sponsored by Levy Informatics at levyinformatics.com. Episode 5, written, edited, produced, and scored by Thessaly Lerner, with original music by Will Collins and Hope for a Golden Summer. Mixed and mastered by Ryan Reeves, narrated by Rainbow Valentine. Associate producers are Sage Lee and Brian Slasher, Trina Calderon, Zappo Dickinson, John Did Sykes, Johanna Romney, and Mark Margolis. Logo by Jordan Paisano. Special thanks to Episode 5 guests, Dennis McNally, Kathy Mason Lerner, Denise Kaufman, Laura Foster Corbin, and Sunshine Keezy. Plus appreciation for all the do re Me budget donors, our partners at Pantheon Podcasts, and you, our listener, and the incomparable Wavy Gravy. For more info, go to wavygravy.net or rainbowvalentine.com. Raise a glass to the downfall of evil and towards the fun. Wah-ha-ha.